So today I'm have the honor of uh, giving this reflection on the Buddhist teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And of course, this is the essential teaching in, in Buddhism. What the Buddha gave to his five friends after the Buddha's enlightenment. And so this is uh, one of the day, the Sala Puja day that I've always liked uh, to give talks because I've used this teaching of the Four Noble Truths during all my years as a monk as a kind of basis, a foundation for reflection. Because there's so much information, views and opinions and uh, about Buddhist teaching and and uh, different forms of Buddhism have happened since, and Mahayana Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism. Then there's emphasis at this particular time on mindfulness or awareness, conscious awareness. And the Buddha addressed this awareness very clearly in his Four Noble Truths teaching, the first sermon he gave after enlightenment. So what, when we talk about enlightenment, what do we mean? Because it's, it's, uh, it's something we all would like to have. All of us here, everybody wants to become enlightened, I assume and because it's a very desirable goal in life to live your life in order to become someone who is enlightened. So when we talk about the Buddha's enlightenment, what, what actually happened to the Buddha that, we, that he could say he was enlightened? And so, <clears throat> is enlightenment something we've got to get? You know, there's a question to ask yourself. Is, is uh, on a personal level, uh, according to the English language, the word enlightenment is, is a desirable goal in life, the ultimate goal maybe for human beings. But what exactly is it? What do we mean by that? And of course, the Buddha's teaching of the Four Noble Truths points the way to the realization that nobody gets enlightened 
as long as they're deluded and believe that they are someone who has to get enlightened. So the, no doubt the Buddha during his enlightenment saw through all the illusions of himself being a, a, a prince, a, a, an ascetic, a, a man, an Indian or whatever he, he was conditioned to think of himself as being. He saw that all this was just conditioned phenomena, empty phenomena passing by. And when you, then the teaching is to let go of phenomena. And to let go of phenomena is what we call awareness. Awareness of the way things are. <clears throat> so right now the experience of sitting here in the temple and uh, giving a talk, a reflection, is to um, be aware that it's like this. And so this statement of it's like this is, is awareness but without claiming or describing it as pleasant, unpleasant, by giving it any quality whatsoever. But there is conscious awareness here and now. And so the first two noble truths are dealing with dukkha or suffering. And this is the most common human experience. We we all have suffered in life, <clears throat> whether we've had great fortune or all kinds of opportunities and, and wonderful things happening. It's still the, the suffering that all human beings experience due to ignorance, due to not understanding Dhamma, ultimate reality, by not really knowing who you are, where you are, you try, we try to find identities that we, you know, as being, we identify with the race, with the gender, with nationality, <clears throat> with social position, with being summoners or being lay people. Uh, these are all identities that we tend to believe in. But are they really what anyone really is? You know, on a conventional level, we can use the terms like bhikkhus, siladharas, anagarikas, anagarikas, and these are conventions only. But the conventions are conditioned phenomena. They're not what any of us really are. So what are we? If we're not a convention, if we're not a condition. And so the Buddha pointed to understanding. An understanding in this sense means to, to not try to figure out as a person why you suffer. If it, you know, we, we spend a lot of time on psychotherapy and and uh, a kind of psychology dealing with why do I feel anger or resentment or feel jealousy or fear or so we 
we, we want to find a source of our suffering, <clears throat> and, and, but we're seeking it always as something that happened in the past or in the present. But time itself is an illusion because experience is always now. When you really reflect on time, the past is a memory that you, you might have, remembering the recitation, recitation of the Padimokha this morning, that's, that's a memory. Because it's past, it's over. But we remember it. And the future, tomorrow is the day we traditionally enter the, the Vasa, the Pantha, the three months traditional range retreat as we inherited it from India, from Thailand. That's in the future. That's an, uh, uh, we imagine that, even tomorrow, which we can take for granted. It's an imagination in the present moment. So tomorrow is, a, is an image we create with words. Tomorrow is the day we enter the Vasa. This morning we, we did our recitation of the precepts. But what is it? time right now, it's here and now, it's timeless. And as, I, as one of my early talks was about here and now, now is the knowing. So knowingness is, is, is uh, this is not a kind of <clears throat> ignorant exp uh, exp uh, trying to just de-educate yourself or annihilate yourself as a person or as, a, out of a, as any identity. But the Four Noble Truths is a direction to, to investigate. It's all about investigation to find out for yourself. And this is one of the most impressive and inspiring teachings because it's, it's giving us the, the right to investigate life as we experience it without telling, what, telling us what we should believe in or what we should be or anything else, but just to investigate here and now the way it is. And time is an illusion because experience, this is experience that we're having now. Tomorrow is not an experience, it's an imagination. We imagine tomorrow, and we can be aware of tomorrow as an image, as a word, or the past, this morning, is a memory. We remember it, remember yesterday. So just by, this is like investigating. We're encouraged to investigate experience. The things we take for granted, such as time, such as the past, such as the future, such as 
the, what you believe you are, how you've been conditioned to think or believe that you are, uh, you have a name, you have a, all kinds of identities that you were not born with. As I've pointed out many times, like a newborn baby is a conscious human form but we give it a name. The mother or father decide this baby's going to be called a certain name. We didn't choose the name. It was given to us. Babies are born either male or female babies, but male and female are words in the English language. And so we identify how males should be, boys should wear blue and girls, uh, female babies should wear pink. And this is all kind of part of a, an assumed tradition, a cultural tradition that we strongly become addicted to because we're informed what we are, our worth when we're very innocent, when we're children. So whether the information is, is very good or very bad, it is not what any of us really are. So the third noble truth is about the end of suffering. Where is the end of suffering is now. Neuroda is not something you'll ever realize as long as you're attached to an identity as a person, separate person, a personality. Personalities cannot be enlightened because they are illusions. Personalities are empty phenomena, memories and and all kinds of attitudes, biases, prejudices, convictions, beliefs that we acquire after we're born, usually in our innocent years, when we're just the kind, like an innocent child just doesn't investigate what he, what he or she is being taught, but just assuming that that the parents, the, the elders, the priests, the rabbis all know what's right and wrong and we are informed of this and encouraged to, to behave in a certain way and be punished if we misbehave. So the personality is based on reward and punishment So this is investigating the end of suffering then isn't about becoming an enlightened person or a Buddha or a Bodhisattva or anything else but in learning to let go of everything, absolutely everything. And letting go in this case is not, is not annihilating anything, it's not about 
destroying the world or destroying your personality, but recognizing that what you believe, what you think, what you've been told is right and wrong is conditioned phenomena. And conditioned phenomena cannot ever get enlightened because it's empty. In the dependent origination teaching, it begins with avicca bhajya sankhara, and the avicca is ignorance of our true nature. So avicca is basically the personality view, the uh, the cultural conditioning, the language that we uh, attach to, the the attitudes, the biases, the prejudices, the beliefs that we. Some may be very good, some may be all wrong, but it's this attachment to what we're not that is avicca or ignorance of Dhamma. Dhamma is here and now. It's not something you get when you're enlightened, but something you actually are at this very here and now reality. So the path is through right understanding, we begin to, 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 and through investigation of suffering and its causes, we have, we realize letting go means to relax, to, to not believe and reinforce old habits by, by operating always from the self-centered view but letting go, trusting in Dhamma as a refuge, because it's here and now, and timeless, and what we actually are Dhamma, rather than a person, a separate entity. So the word Dhamma is another word, a Pali word that we use. But it's not a definition, it's not defined. So in English, we, when we try to define Dhamma, we call it absolute reality. But what does that mean? Is it some vague kind of mystical experience that we hope to attain or realize through meditation, through practice? Realize the Dhamma, become enlightened persons. These are, you know, to investigate. These are not wrong thoughts or bad thoughts, but they're also avicca or ignorance. So the conditioned realm is about good and bad, right and wrong. So we have laws, you know, we have moral, pre, uh, moral precepts. We have, uh, you know, reward and punishment for uh, you're punished if you break the law, if you misbehave, uh, if you get poor grades in school, and on and on like that. You're punished when you succeed. <clears throat> then you're praised, you get rewards, you get accolades, and, 
And so success as a person is a very desirable goal in life, to become wealthy or famous. So these are the values often held up to us in our cultural conditioning. To become a celebrity, become a famous person or a wealthy person or important person, someone who's special. Because you get a lot of praise and a lot of rewards for that, and admiration, respect. And then if you're a criminal, then you get sent off to prison, lost in, a, in some unpleasant situation for many years or for life. But good and bad, right and wrong, are words, are conditioned phenomena. Is Dhamma good or bad? Is it right or is there right Dhamma and bad Dhamma? Or is there, what is absolute reality? What is reality? And so this is reality here and now this is real, conscious, all experience consciousness. The forms are different, so we all have individual forms, identities, ages, nationalities, and on and on like that. So these are differences. So the 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 problems, the strife between individuals and between nations and, and races and classes is all based on this uh, avicca, this false identity that binds us to commit crimes, to kill, to, to annihilate what we don't like. <clears throat> so listening to the news this morning on the radio, the, the war in Ukraine between Russia and Ukraine, you know, a lot of innocent people are being slaughtered at this time in the Sudan and Africa and, and Niger and on and on like this. The endless conflicts are based on Avicca because what we all have in common is consciousness. Consciousness is not personal. It's not my consciousness separate from yours. So consciousness now is a very interesting word in the English language because we're trying to figure out where is it? Is it in the brain? Is it, uh, you know, is it, um, you know, we see it in very personal ways. So when we examine the body, we're, con we're always being conscious through the senses. We have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, a brain. And these are very obvious, impermanent conditions, sense consciousness. 
We have to wear glasses, hearing aids. We have all kinds of physical problems. Disabilities arise. <clears throat> and so consciousness is, uh, through the senses, is, is very impermanent. But is consciousness dependent upon eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and brain? Or is these, are these senses dependent upon consciousness? If there was no consciousness, there'd be no forms uh, available, there'd be no eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, or brain. There'd be no space. If there's no such thing as consciousness, is consciousness just limited to, to senses, then it's very delicate, very impermanent. Or is consciousness, are we all in consciousness? Is consciousness something dependent upon other conditions? And so this reference to here and now, apparent here and now, timeless, when we, when we give the reflections on Dhamma, what we all know is that consciousness is what we're actually experiencing through. That if there's no consciousness, there'd be no forms, there'd be no eyes, ears, tongue, body, there'd be nothing, no space even. So, this is an important time in the history of humanity when suddenly the, the interest in consciousness has become very dominant. Because you can't find it. You know, where is it? Is it the brain? And that's what many people believe, that the brain is the seat of consciousness. But the brain, all our brains are in consciousness. So all of us are in the same consciousness. There's only pure consciousness. And when we reflect on that, then it's a very easy to let go of the forms that we identify with. Because we see that how ephemeral they are, how uncertain, unstable uh, our thoughts, our emotions, our senses can be. So changing from consciousness is something that arises through the senses. The senses arise because of consciousness. The forms are separate and we, we believe that reality, the world, the real world, reality itself is something we, we observe with our eyes or hear with our ears. The real world is out there. We go out to 
try to solve the problems of society uh, through endless conversations, endless peace conferences, uh, trying to figure out how to live together and build peace and harmony. We have ideals such as democracy and harmony and and uh, love, universal love and and loving kindness as beautiful words. But they are words. What What is the reality of loving kindness, of metta? Is it something you create with words by thinking positively and loving everybody and everything? When so much of the world isn't lovable, what we see and hear and smell and taste touch is not lovable or good or right. We're very much aware of what's wrong, who's to blame, uh, and we take sides and we end up in quarrels and confusion and we try to to find, we blame others for our suffering or for what's going wrong in the world. So we're caught in a web, captured in a, in a web, a sticky web that we're clinging to. And we don't notice this. We don't know what we're clinging to. We just are caught in the web, kind of helpless beings like flies in a spider's web. And how do you get out of the web? And so the, this teaching of the Four Noble Truths are the directional directions on how to let go. So it's not about me as a separate form, like a fly that figures out how to get out of the spider's web. It's not that I can figure out how to get out of the realm of delusion as a person. But it's through letting go of everything, just relaxing, being here and now, being the knower of the world. All the world, all phenomena, all experience through the senses is impermanent and not self. So in Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism emphasizes anatta, which means not a separate self. So does the spider get out of the web? Well, it eventually dies or the spider consumes it or something, but that's not it. It's not about death. It's not about uh, escape through becoming free as a separate individual, but no longer believing, no longer caught in the beliefs, the conditioning, the habits, and operating from just the way you've been conditioned to think, to feel, to experience life. So what's left when you let go of everything is 
love is metta. Unconditioned love is because Dhamma is love. There'd be nothing without love. If there is no consciousness, there'd be nothing, no space, no forms, no earth, fire, water, and air. So that's why I encourage you to really investigate these, these six elements, which are very much a part of the original teaching of the Buddha. Consciousness and space are empty. They're formless. Space doesn't have a form. Consciousness has no form. But what has form are earth, fire, water, and air. These bodies, when we investigate, reflect on the nature of our own physical body, it's just made up of earth, of solid elements, liquid elements, fire elements, air elements. This is what the body is, is these four elements in space. So right now, the reflecting on the way it is, these, the space is here and now, you can actually perceive space just by looking. You know, say the space is this uh, Dharma hall, the, is uh, spacious, but the Dhamma Hall is in space. The planet Earth is in space. The sun, moon, stars, the galaxies are all in space. And if there is no space, there'd be no forms. So then we get to the, to the, the forms, they, they can vary, forms are very, uh, are very impermanent. Like all of us, once we're born, we grow up, get old, and die. That's the, the nature of forms. That's the way forms are, they're impermanent. And they're not self. Thoughts, beliefs, fears, desires of all sorts are forms that arise and cease according to conditions. But how could there be space if there was no consciousness? You know, so consciousness is the source. Consciousness then is the end of suffering. And we're all conscious forms here and now. But the ignorance, the avicca, is that we identify with the forms, with the names, with the beliefs, with the conventions. We're attached and bound to the limitation of form in space. And we don't know it. So we suffer because of that. Like growing old is like this. So reflecting on the aging process, 
Does consciousness age? Does it have an age or is it the body? So just the body is the way it is. Right now this, this old body is like this. If I'm identified with it, if that's my identity, then uh, the death is in the future, the past is a memory. And then if I identify with, with my position, with my uh, past, with, and the, what does the future hold for an old person like this? But death, the inevitable demise of the physical body. So that, as a person, that's, uh, it's very confusing when you're old. As a person, because your personality was formed when you were young. So if I still believed that, that I was a person, a separate person, then, you know, there's a lot to uh, kind of who am I, an old monk in a monastery? Where do I belong? And uh, then there's a lot of fears about death. I don't want to be suffer from pain. I want a peaceful death. Or I want to live another decade. <clears throat> People oftentimes wish on my birthday that I live to 120 years. And that's a kind of a curse. Imagine trying to, you know, life is physically difficult enough at 89. But 120, I'd hate to imagine what I have to deal with if this body lived to that venerable age. It might be praiseworthy as some kind of great attainment. But then that's the person again, thinking I want to attain the age of 120. So do, is it suffering to get old? You know, I could create suffering around aging by just resenting the fact that my vision is not very good or I can't walk very well. You know, because as a person, one, as a personality, I like walking, I like to, I used to have perfect vision and all this, so that's the personality, which is very conditioned, very impermanent. Uh, if I, that's where I operate from, then old age is suffering. But is old age suffering if you're aware, if you realize your true nature is Dhamma, a matta dhamma, deathless reality, absolute reality, then what's there to suffer from? And that's an eroda when you really see the end of suffering is always here and now. It's not about in the future ending suffering, but the realization, the simple reality of non-attachment, letting life be what it is, 
living in the form, like in the monastic form, is a very honorable way to spend one's life as a summoner. About doing good, refrain from doing bad, and on and on like this. So the, the morality, the, 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 the goodness of the form is very, you know, admirable way to live one's life, to just develop this, this the, the path, the eight, what they call the Eightfold Path, the realization of the deathless, the Amata Dhamma. And the Buddha made it very clear in the Dhammajaka Pavatana Sutta, his first sermon, that it's neither annihilation nor eternalism. It's not about becoming an eternal kind of entity or about killing yourself or about suicide or annihilating anything. It's not about destruction or creation, but about the reality of here and now timeless so this practice in this three months traditional retreat at this time which the Sangha will formally enter tomorrow. See it as, uh, you know, to really investigate how you react, how you respond to situations. Just not to be critical, but just, it's not a critical investigation about right and wrong anymore. It is about the way it is. All conditions are impermanent. They, what arises ceases. So during this vasa, I encourage all of you to really be the, the knower of the world. The world is you know, a very confusing place. We've got all kinds of ominous signs with climate change and wars and nuclear threats and, and uh, droughts and famines and fires and, and all kinds of ominous predictions for the future that are very scary. So how do we relate to this? People ask me, how do I relate to the, the, to the climate change? We've, you know, there's so much controversy around about uh, degradation of the environment, about the green movement, and all these are rather noble causes But they, they create also a lot of suffering for us. We get so involved with who's to blame and who's for the green movement, who's for climate change, who's against it, who's to blame, and we take sides. 
and we get caught. We believe we are in the sticky web that we've created, that we're bound to out of ignorance. So letting go is not becoming indifferent or not caring, but it's realizing that there's absolutely nothing to fear. Everything has its time, it's, it's it, you know, it, if it has a beginning, it has an ending. So that's the nature of conditioned phenomena of sankharas. So you're never going to get a, a permanently good sankhara, you know, a stable government, democratic system where everything is fair and just. because that's an ideal, beautiful idea. But changing is the nature of phenomena, and it's not always changing in the way that we want it to. So as long as our attachment to the world no matter how righteous or good your, your ideas might be, they are ideas. And the world is a condition that is changing. But what doesn't change, the end of suffering, is here and now, the awareness, sati-sampatanya, mindfulness, and precise understanding that you're not anything that's conditioned or bound to a sticky web. That right now the world might be a, the conditions that we're involved in become sticky, but that's also impermanent. So in uh, Sangha life or in lay life, in family life, we begin to stop creating suffering around the way it is. That doesn't mean things change, except that we're not suffering over the changing conditions that we're experiencing. So growing old is like this. So there's no suffering in conscious awareness. In personality, in, in uh, personal preferences, I could create all kinds of suffering about getting old. About the world, about climate change, we can certainly commit ourselves to good causes and try to bring more awareness to the climate or our position in it as a, a separate form, as an entity. 
But as long as you bind yourself to that limitation, then suffering is the result. You can't escape it. That sankharas are all suffering. There's no attachment to sankharas are suffering. This blind, ignorant attachment to phenomena that changes and oftentimes changes in a way we don't like. But it's not about like, liking or disliking anymore, it's about understanding, understanding suffering, understanding desire. When you see yourself, do you, you know, trying to get rid of desire? The second noble truth is all about pointing out the nature of desire, the sankhara. Desire is conditioned and is not self. And it can be understood. So when you see yourself as a greedy person, a lustful person, or as a one who has a lot of anger and resentment, that's, that's suffering, to see yourself always in terms of what's, what you believe is right or wrong about yourself, the form that you identify with. So this Four Noble Truths teaching is something to take seriously. And in course, in, in the history of Buddhism as it developed from the time of the Buddha to the present time, it's had many changes, some of them very good, and some of them, you know, very deluding. But the essential teaching has never been corrupted or changed. The Four Noble Truths is a very precise, very accurate direction to investigate. It doesn't ask you to believe or cling to the Four Noble Truths, but to investigate according to the directions. They're not beliefs, they're not, you don't have to believe in the Four Noble Truths. There to question, to investigate, to find out for yourself. So the realization of Dhamma is budgetang veti dapo to be realized individually through wisdom, through ineffable wisdom, not wisdom you acquire from reading wise sayings, but wisdom that has no language but is apparent here and now and timeless. So I offer this as a reflection for today.